if you drop dynamite, it'll explode. You're supposed to be really careful with this. So the power, the the, uh, the, the power of the dynamite is within itself. So power, we think about power is also often translated as the word ability. That's within the person. So I've got the ability to do something. The, uh, an authority is not coming from within the person, but it's coming from outside the person and attributed to the person. This is very clearly for us seen in the office of like police officers who might not always have power within themselves, think Barney Fife, and yet they have the authority of the police. So they, they can pull you over with their sirens, even though they might they have a, a, a pathetic car and not a lot of physical strength or ability, they have authority. And in contrast, uh, uh, similarly, a person with authority might not have a lot of power. Or someone with a lot of power might not have a lot of authority. So just because somebody's got a bigger or stronger car than you, they can't pull you over unless there's a siren on top, right? So there's a distinction between power and authority. Power is always from within and authority is given to someone from the outside. And Jesus is recognizing here this distinction. He's, he's giving both. He gives them power. So these disciples are now having this ability to heal that they didn't really, we didn't see that in the disciples before. And really, after the first generation of the church, you don't, you don't really see it again. The healing miracles that accompany the preaching of the gospel in the early church kind of dies with the first wave of the, uh, of the apostles. And there's a reason for that. Uh, in part, uh, well, I think it's a question I bring to you later. So let me hold that one. Uh, verse 2, he gives, so he gives him power and authority. All, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. So then he's handing over authority then to the apostles, some of that authority, over the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them. So this word send is the Greek apostello, where we get the word apostle. So a disciple is someone who's learning. So a learner of Jesus. And we learn from like the end of Matthew, make disciples of all nations how? Baptizing, teaching, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you, right? And lo, I'm with you always. Baptizing and teaching are kind of this characteristic definition of the disciple. You have been baptized. You live your life rejoicing and learning the Lord's word. You are a disciple of Jesus. And yet, you are not necessarily given to be an apostle. As we said in the Nicene Creed today, I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. So we trace the lineage of the ministry of the church itself through the apostles, the sent ones who are sent to proclaim the gospel, to administer the sacraments, the authority to do those things. Uh, so then and to go back to the, the apostolic ministry, the pastoral office is not about a power within oneself, like a pastor has some magical power to forgive sins or to do anything at all but it's an authority as give, received from Jesus. He says, hey, I want you to tell them that their sins are forgiven. And when they hear it, I want them to know that it's just as valid and certain as if I said it myself. That's authority. Speaking on behalf of Jesus to his, to his people. And he sent them out. He apostles them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So right away, this proclamation of the gospel, 
the proclamation of God's kingdom is accompanied by these healings. These, we can maybe, to put it maybe in our use today, more these acts of mercy, not just healing. Because we continue, by the way, we continue doing this. We should continue doing this as the Lord's church. Not in the sense that we've got some magical ability to heal stuff. So people are showing up, bringing out their diseases, and we heal them. But look who founded all the, all the hospitals. As, as hospitals start getting founded by people, who's all, go around in any city, they're all, they're all named after saints. Something to do with, it's all from the church. There's a Christian heart toward caring for the body of the people whose body has been impacted by sin. So we're, we're addressing both at the same time. Ultimately, we realize though, that the pursuit of healing the body has a limited, like ultimately we're not gonna heal them forever. So it is ultimately about the soul, getting the gospel proclaimed. And yet, just like Jesus, he can't help himself. He stands in front of somebody who's hurting and he loves them and he wants to help them. And he calls us to do love the neighbor as ourselves. So we see someone who's hurting, we have the ability to help them and we try to help them in some way. That is not, by the way, that is not the gospel. Faith does not come by healing. <laughs> faith comes by healing and healing by the power of God. No, faith comes hearing the gospel. But the gospel is often accompanied by those who are like, given joy and uh, peace by the gospel, are then we're faced up to our neighbor who's got some kind of physical suffering and we want to help them. We don't have the magical ability to just heal someone by the authority of Christ, but we can do things like give somebody a sandwich, help clothe them, support, support organizations that help the needy and the sick, right? Just helping our neighbor in need. So that's no question that we see Christians all, always doing that. For the disciples, so, so that, I just, my point there is that the basic idea of preaching the gospel and, and caring for the body of those who are, who are suffering is still a part of the church. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, or money, and do not have two tunics. So they were just gonna be like hungry and stinky all the time. <laughs> Don't bring a suitcase, just go. Think about how, how differently, how, how much would you have been worried about this situation? Now, we are not called, by the way, this does not apply to you. It's not sending you, he's not, he's not apostelloing you. This doesn't apply, he's talking just to his disciples. We can learn from, his apostles here, we can learn from this that ultimately they are being taught to put their faith not in themselves, but but the Lord. So you, uh, we, we talk about this all the time. We, your faith will always be in something. To have great faith is to have faith in a great thing. Not that you've got some kind of great faith within yourself, but it's simply a matter of where your faith is pointed. So as the disciples are being taught here by Jesus to put their faith in God, to provide for them, and, and they learn a lot in this process, I'm sure. I mean, can imagine at this point, it's, it's probably, they weren't walking into this blind. They've seen Jesus do some pretty cool stuff by now. So like, well, if he said, don't worry about it, then it'll take care of itself. Uh, Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. The way some of the commentators suppose, is so they're not, they're not kind of worried about 
where I'm going to stay tonight. Their mind is going to occupy most of their day. Like we've got the advantage of Google and Yelp, trying to find the hotel. If you don't like the hotel you're in tonight, you find somewhere else. You call around. They're full. Find somewhere else. He doesn't want to worry about that. Find somebody that's going to take you in. Stay put. Don't try to, try to find nicer or better dwelling. Just stay put and do the, go about the preaching. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, do the Taylor Swift thing and shake it off. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> I got that song stuck in my head. Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. We still use that idiom today, you know, shake the dust off your feet, let them be dead to you. Um, the gospel, this is one of my questions I come back to. Um, the gospel is rejected. Uh, so let's just look at the question here. I think it's B on the, under verses one through six. The gospel preached by Jesus' disciples is rejected at times. What does this teach us about the gift of faith and growth in the kingdom? So here's these apostles who are sent by Jesus himself to proclaim the gospel that itself brings faith and life. And they're walking into a place, they're preaching the gospel, and it's still rejected, right? So even the apostles are being taught like the church that you don't, you don't, don't, pay, don't take it personally, uh, and don't take credit, positively or negatively. Faith is given. Sometimes it grows in, in front of your eyes. Sometimes you don't see it. Either way, the Lord's not sending them to, to do the harvesting. He's sending them to do the sowing. And if it gets rejected, so be it. You shake, it shake it off, move on to the next place. Sometimes faith is rejected. And our experience, it's certainly the case that we can see it all around us, I mean, faith being, being rejected. Um, usually in our context, it's not like these disciples are walking into, a, put, your, put yourself in their shoes, like they're walking to a place that is all Jewish and preaching the gospel to people who have never heard. The, I mean, for them, they didn't have the gospel yet. They're talking about the kingdom of Jesus, this coming Messiah, that the Messiah is here. They're not even proclaiming the cross as, a, as an accomplished event. They're just preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and yet people are rejecting them. It's, it's common also in our experience to have that happen, for the gospel to be, be preached. But usually in our experiences, in this post-Christian culture, we have, we have people who are walking away from Christianity. They've, they've already heard the gospel. They've even grown up in church, let's say, and for whatever reason, they've rejected the faith. So it's not as simple in our experiences to just, well, shake it off and shake, shake, the, shake them off like dust off your feet. But there's more conversation. Our, our experiences are likened to more of like Paul's experiences and acts, having this reasoned conversation with people. Because very often in your own families, maybe your own, some of your own experiences, um, people have like joined our church and my conversations with them is that they, they rejected the faith because they were growing up in a church that wasn't preaching the gospel. They didn't know it. And it, it's not like they actively said, I'm leaving the church because they're not preaching the gospel. But that essentially, this, there's an emptiness to the law there, and they just depart from it. So they've rejected. From our perspective, they left the church, and really, they've, they've spit out the gospel that they've never heard. So that, in a way, that motivates us to just proclaim the gospel with clarity and simplicity to our Christian or non-Christian neighbors or those who have wandered from the faith. 
So they could be thinking they reject the church, but they don't even know what the church is. Other times, the church, the, the church might be rejected for a variety of reasons. The gospel, I should say, more so than the church. Um, the church is always oppressed by the devil and stuff. But to reject the gospel, people are doing it for different ways. Sometimes they might be doing it because suffering is in their life and they don't think it's fair. How can a loving God do this? So people are wrestling with these issues. But that's, that's where the Christian suffering along with our neighbor comes. We, we come alongside and help talk through this. Now, why would you think God is mad at you just because this bad stuff is happening? Or God hates you because this bad stuff is happening? Let's walk through that logic. How is a Christian to understand suffering? Obviously, God knows that we suffer. That's why Jesus died. He's, he, he suffered in our place that so we would not suffer eternally. But the Christian life is not supposed to be marked by, as soon as I make a decision for Jesus, my life is gonna constantly be awesome. It's the opposite, in fact. Being baptized into Christ, like Jesus, we get a target on our back for the devil. The devil doesn't care about assaulting you when you're not in the faith, but as a believer, then all of a sudden, the devil brings his temptations. So the life of the Christian is full of challenges and Jesus himself and later is going to talk about the cross of the Christian. But that's the conversation we want to have with our, with our family, with our friends uh, who might have left the faith. So we're, that's a conversation we have to have. It's going to be different. It's not formulaic. It's got to be different in every situation. Uh, but then also we recognize that at the end of the day, sometimes the gospel is just rejected. Arguably, these, these apostles were going to be pretty good at it. Um, and the message was probably quite simple. And ultimately, the, the gift of faith is something outside of their hands. And Jesus himself is saying, if they reject it, just move on. What he doesn't say here is, hey, by the way, the town that you shake your dust off your feet, it's not like they're forever forgotten. How many times has the Christian church over the generations from this, the first century, swirled back through that area, do you think? whether like on the way to the crusades or on the way back or in the whole range of time before that, all the time after that, the gospel has been swirling around. So it's not like they're just condemned them. It's just like, move on. Don't take it personally. All right. And they departed and went through the villages, preach again, preaching and healing everywhere. Preaching the gospel, even though the, the cross hasn't happened yet. Again, the gospel is simply the good news, the good news of the kingdom, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of sins that would be won by Christ on the cross. They don't know it yet as a cross. In fact, we're about to hear it for the first time, the cross. Any, any questions or comments on verses one through six? All right, let's flip over to verse seven. We, we take our Google maps and we zoom out from the disciples who are kind of starting to spread around the Israel area and we kind of pan over to Herod in his little happy kingdom there. Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler, heard about all that was happening because it's spreading. He sent out 12 disciples. They're doing miracles. So it's not just Jesus now. It's the, the word is spreading. More people are seeing it, starting to pick up momentum, get more of a reputation. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? 
and he sought to see him. So I, I'm not sure if it's in Matthew. Forgot to look this up, but where, where John, or, um, Herod actually, he thinks that Jesus is John. He thinks it's, he's really, he's really concerned about this. So we see some major confusion happening in Herod. Ultimately, this question is, that kind of marks the chapter is this, who is Jesus? Verse nine, John I beheaded, who's this guy? Who is Jesus about whom I hear such things? What is, this, what is the identity of Jesus? He's gonna come back to that and Jesus himself is gonna ask, who do people say that I am? And he sought to see him. And he will see him. Remember on, on, on Good Friday, before Jesus is crucified, he keeps getting like dragged back and forth. Like Herod wants to see him, Pontius Pilate wants to see him, the, the, the high, high priest see him, so he's dragged all around. So Herod got to meet him. At least um, that wish was fulfilled of Herod. Verse 10, on their return, the apostles now, for the first time, there's a shift. They're not just the, they've been sent out, they're, they're kind of marked as the apostles, told him all that they had done. And they took them and withdrew apart to a town. And he took them and, and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So again, we got this, preaching of the kingdom of God, tied together with healing. It's always interesting to me when Jesus does that because of all people, Jesus knows I can fix your body today, but ultimately what? You're just gonna die anyway. So if anybody should be less motivated to fix a person's body, it would be Jesus. And yet he's the most motivated to do it because he just hates to see how not only sin has impacted the soul, but now the sin has also hit the body in all these different and various ways, and he just can't, he can't help himself. He just heal, heals people. Not, not as the end in itself, mind you. He's never just healing, but he's always accompanying that healing message with the gospel. Now, a day began to wear away, and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place, the wilderness, a desert. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Oh, what? We're kind of hungry too. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish that we stole from this little kid over here. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He took bread and broke it after giving thanks. Starts to sound familiar, doesn't it? He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. So send the crowd away so they can find lodging, so they can grab a hotel and get some food at the nearby, one of the nearby villages. So he says that, and then we give them this next minor detail, 5,000 of them. So it only says 5,000 men. Maybe it's Luke that says it's five, or uh, Matthew, it says 5,000 men plus women and children. If, if they're following the 
there's a lot of connections to Exodus here, not to bore you with that, but there's like this, there's all these fulfillments that are happening, uh, including having them sit down in groups of 50. That was something happening back in Exodus 18. He has them sitting down in groups. Um, and also counted the, the men who came out of the Exodus, but doesn't list the women and children. Not that they don't count, but just the way they're counting, which would, which would mean 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children? I don't know, maybe 7,000 people, 8,000 people. So what nearby village can house that many people? It's not like there's a hotel industry. Even if there were, they're in the middle of nowhere. So they're, they're literally in the, a desolate place. So even if there was a, McDon a McDonald's with all of our productivity and efficiency and cranking out billions and billions served, not in that one day at that one McDonald's, right? So how are you gonna feed 7,000 people or more that you can't do it? So Jesus, the, the disciples are all like, they're starting to get really nervous here. Just send them away, not so they can find a place to sleep and eat, just because I don't want to deal with an angry mob here. Send them away so we can get out of here and find out where they're going so we can go somewhere else so we can at least get a sandwich. Because there's going to be no food wherever they go. And he says, you give them something to eat. It's very, very, uh, almost condemning, scary words for the disciples. How... How are we going to do this? We got this bigger picture here of now Jesus is teaching how his ministry is going to be. You, my apostle, you're going to give them something to eat. And the disciples are standing there, what are we going to do? I have got nothing within myself. All we got is five loaves of bread and two fish, but what's that among so many? There's nothing in me, and yet Jesus is saying, you do it but you're not gonna be the one to do it, are they? They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Seems like nothing, but as we see, there's made more than enough by Jesus. Uh, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were 5,000 men, he said, have them sit down in groups of 50. So I was trying to picture this in my head. How many, how many of you are here? How many, eight people at a table? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. 10 times eight is 80, but all the tables don't have eight people. So then maybe there's 50 people here. So you'd be a group. No, it's, what's 5,000 divided by 50? Pastor math, a hundred groups. So that had to be, I mean, just, I'm just measuring that how this went down. If I tried to say, I'm gonna break you guys up into groups of 10. And then they're like, you know, I want to, Sherry's like, I want to stand next to Mike. Or maybe she's saying, I don't want to stand next to Mike. We got to deal with all those problems. There's a practical way of, okay, you guys come over here and you guys can, no, 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 hey, you in the back, come over here, trying to do it. 50 groups. That'd take, but it says the day was wearing away. So you get this picture, sun is kind of starting to set, beautiful pink and orange skies. And they're trying to get people together. And they sit in the groups of 50. I'm just thinking through how practically what that would have looked like. And they're hungry and thirsty. They're in the middle of the desert. As a side note here, let me see young parents. Beth, I saw, I saw Schultz back here. Is there a Schultz? Yes. So Beth and Josh, when you go to the grocery store, if you bring in your children, do you just think, hey, grab my keys and let's go. <laughs> no, 
do we have a pouch? Do we have a change of clothes? Mandy and I were at Costco yesterday. Of course, we take her out of the car seat, walking in. My hand feels kind of wet. <laughs> so we're like, we're changing a blowout in the, at Costco. I won't tell you where, so let. People looking at us. <laughs> but you can't leave. You don't, you don't just go anywhere without bringing something. Especially you don't go to, into a desolate place without bringing a bottle of water and a sandwich, you know? And yet they did. They had just gone. I heard Jesus is here. Let's go. And they go. So this is really interesting. And so the Lord is almost behind that too. Like it was all a setup. He wanted all these people to be out there empty handed to cause the panic in the disciples so that he could teach the disciples how he's going to be providing for his church using their meager ability to do it. He's going to be doing it. Don't worry. Uh, have them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and had them all sit down. We'll just quickly, verse 15, they had them all sit down. It took forever. And, talk, and taking, the five, taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. Now the Greek echoes a lot of the same with the Lord's Supper here. We get this big foreshadowing of the words of institution in Luke 22. Also, after the resurrection, Luke gives us that cool picture of the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is walking with those two disciples seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And they're like, they're sad. And Jesus is like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, the guy we thought was God died. No big deal. And uh, then he, taught, he opens the scriptures to them. They say, Jesus, or they say, random guy we just met, come abide with us. Come for his evening and the day is far spent. And they sit down and Jesus takes the bread after giving thanks. He broke it. And their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. And then Jesus disappears from among them. And they're, they're, they're given to learn that Jesus is making himself present for the church in his supper. That's Luke 24. I'll talk about that in 2024 when we get to Luke 24. But today with the Greek, we get, this, we get the same language here. So it's, it's like a foreshadowing of what's, what's coming later in the Lord's Supper. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And this is really the church. So he takes, he takes his gifts and he gives them to his people using means, using the instrument of his, of his pastors. And they were ate and were satisfied. They were full. At the time of Jesus, no one ate till they were full except for like Herod. Everybody else is like in poverty. So you can imagine the idea of a, the endless fish and bread Jesus buffet and you're eating till you're full. And then they had 12 baskets of leftovers. So this overflowing gift of Jesus, you know, you gotta imagine what they're, what they're thinking. Like you never have leftovers. It's not an issue. When you're hungry, you just eat to survive. And so now they got 12, gather all the leftovers because otherwise we, we just never seen that leftovers. There's not Ziploc bags. Like everybody's trying to get their hands on this fish sandwich to take home. It's a real practical, I'm just wondering what it was like. Um, let's see. One of my questions here is, it is in this miracle, God provides bread and fish. How is this nothing new? Who provides bread and fish all the time? The five and two. Where do those come from? He created them all in the first place. Both from speech at the beginning, 
But then also he sets into place the natural processes from which come the, the ongoing spawning of fish and the whole way of making bread. What was different about this situation? It just took a little bit less time than how God normally does it. So at, at, at creation, he can speak fish into existence. Um, but then we've got this natural process of like making bread. For those of you who like to bake, you gotta like get the flour and you gotta let the yeast rise. And it just takes time. And we recognize, and we, when we sit down to eat that loaf of bread, who do you give thanks to? God for the bread. So in the same way here, it's God is providing the bread. He's just doing it a lot quicker and not using the regular means, just as he did at the wedding in Cana. So it wasn't like, it's pretty cool that water turns into wine. But that happens all the time, right? I mean, it just takes, you have, the, you have the water kind of with grape juice, you have this liquid there that's not alcohol and fermentation process happens and it becomes wine. It just takes a long time. So God fast forwards it. In verse 18, come back to the identity of Jesus question. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. <laughs> Luke doesn't really understand what alone means. So Jesus is always trying to be by himself and the disciples are sticking with him. Why would you not? I mean, you're, you get hungry and he fills your belly. You get sick and he cures you. So they're like, they're keeping close. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? If you're going to be interrupting me while I'm trying to pray, guys, Let's have a conversation. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. So it's an echo of what we heard earlier that Herod was saying people were saying. John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others say Elijah. By the way, who was Elijah? So we had this miraculous disappearance of Elijah in the Old Testament, but then also remember how uh, John the Baptist was held to be the Elijah because it was said oh, Elijah was going to come before the Messiah. And now we get John the Baptist who comes doing all the Elijah stuff. He's dressed like him. He eats like him. He preaches like him. So that was John the Baptist, one, one might say. He's not Elijah. But also maybe somebody's thinking he's Elijah, not only because of the prophecies, but also it's like this pretty impressive dude who did miracles in the Old Testament who just disappeared. Maybe he just appeared again. It sounded like that when he appeared to him. That one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged to command them to tell this to no one. So, the identity of Jesus on our handout here, the identity of Jesus is central to the purpose, proclamation, and practice of the church. Why is the answer to who do you say that I am so central to the Christian worldview? So he, he's asking this question early on to his disciples, but think about how instrumental your confession of who Jesus is it's so foundational to everything that you do. Your, your life as a Christian in this world is driven by the answer to this question. Who is Jesus? 
Uh, I put a C.S. Lewis quote on there, or, or alluded to it. I think it was C.S. Lewis. That Jesus was either a, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. This, this logical step of saying, okay, you got this historical Jesus that you have to deal with. And he said a lot of seemingly crazy or impressive things. He prophesied, as he's about to do here, his own death. So he's either a liar about all the things that he said, including identifying himself with God before Abraham was, I am, or he's crazy, like he actually thinks that he's God, but he's just wrong and crazy, or everything that he's saying is in fact true. So you have to deal with Jesus and actually put all that together and say, okay, if, if he is the Lord, then like everything follows. What else, what else matters? He's given, me, he's given me right from wrong, good from evil. He's, God has set that for me. I know how I'm supposed to live my life in this world and love toward my neighbor. I know that since he won the victory over death, I need not fear death. So the way that I, the way that I think about my my lifespan is not, as the psalmist says, 70 or by reason of strength, 80, but actually I'm eternal. And so it puts things in perspective for me, lest I use the, lest the temporal things of this world cause me to stray from the eternal things that matter. And Jesus is gonna come back to that. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So for us to, to know who Jesus is, namely as God in the flesh who dies for us and dies for sinners, it impacts everything that we are and everything that we do, the way that we talk to one another. The Christian life um, is the, the embodiment if, in a way of, of this forgiveness of Jesus. So the, the willingness to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. That, that conversation we have with one another is coming in humility toward others, putting the needs of others before yourself, self-sacrifice. We get that from Jesus. It's all coming from who he is. Uh, Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Messiah. That's the translation, Christ, Messiah. Um, after this moment, Jesus will go on to start speaking of his death more openly. Now, we, we know from Matthew 16, Luke doesn't account this, so Luke does Peter a little favor because Matthew shines a light on it. So Matthew must have had like, he never really liked Peter. If you, it's interesting, if you watch The Chosen, who's, you guys watch The Chosen? You, you see this, um, I, I, a lot of things that they do are actually very good. I'm, I'm like anti-shows about the Bible because they always mess it up. And for some reason, The Chosen does a pretty good job, including this ongoing animosity between Matthew and Peter that's kind of portrayed in the, in the show, The Chosen. Uh, Matthew's the one that brings up the little interchange, get behind me, Satan. Remember when Peter's, at this point, Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. And then Jesus strictly tells them to say this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day rise. And then Matthew says, and then he pulls him aside and, say, and rebukes him, no, Lord, not you. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. So Peter, 
what we learned, at least from Matthew's portrayal of the same conversation, is that when, she, when Peter says, the, you are the Christ of God, he doesn't really what? He doesn't quite get it. He doesn't get it yet. And so Jesus, can, he unfolds further what it means to be the Christ. Now, as a side note here, Jesus anticipated already that the association of Jesus as being the Messiah was going to be misinterpreted by everyone, which is why he said right away, I am the Messiah. Don't tell anybody about it yet. You don't get it. Like as soon as he said it, it's like, it's like whenever, like, when, whenever I tell my dad that we're pregnant, I have to, in the same sentence, say, don't put it on Facebook. It's not public yet. It's like, because he's already, he's already halfway through the post before, <laughs> before I finish the sentence. No, Dad. It's the same way here. Peter says, you're the Messiah, and, and he doesn't, Jesus doesn't correct them. And they're all like, oh, silence. They're about to go. No, 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 don't, don't tell people yet. They're not going to get it yet because the Son of Man, not unlike this military king um, who's going who's gonna to blow in and wipe out the Romans, and you're understanding what the Messiah will be, Instead, the Son of Man must suffer. So his Messiahness is going to be is going to be primarily defined by his suffering. This is the first prediction of his cross, by the way. Son of Man, Daniel title, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and then on the third day be raised. So as Luke writes this, fast I mean you're going to fast forward to when Luke is, is writing this after the cross and resurrection event as he's reflecting. Because uh, remember, Luke's the guy who's going around and interviewing all the people. So Luke's asking, he's asking uh, Peter, he's asking all the apostles, Mary, like what about these conversations? And they said, yeah, Jesus said he was going to be rejected by the chief priest and he was going to be killed. And then he said he was going to be raised. And that's when we were like rolling our eyes, like, okay, maybe he's off his rocker, but he did just feed 5,000 people. So I don't know what to do with this. But he did predict it. And that comes back to this Jesus being raised from the dead, giving validity to everything that he said, verifying that he's in fact the Lord and not a liar or a lunatic. So huge point, as the disciples recall, that he was going to be, he said he was going to be raised, and then he actually was. Now, we got a couple minutes left, and I want this, what we just covered with him saying that he was going to be, his messianess was going to be defined by his suffering, death, and resurrection. He then turns, and so they, we skip over the, inter, the conversation with Peter, but then Matthew also records this in 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross when you think about a cross, what do you think about? The cross. It hasn't happened yet. So Jesus is saying, take up your cross. It's like he knows. Which again, to use the chosen, there's that one scene when he goes into Jerusalem, Jesus looks up at the cross and there's guys who are being crucified on the way into Jerusalem and he's kind of like, because ah, he kind of knows. Yeah. Unless you think he didn't know it was coming, but this kind of thing actually verifies that he, he did. That's why he ties his suffering to actually the word cross. 
Um, and denial of self. So think about how, how countercultural that is today. If anyone would come after me, deny yourself. Versus, what's the, the message of our society today? <laughs> Embrace yourself. The rise and triumph of the modern self. Like you yeah, hold up any, any desire within yourself. Don't hold it back, but be like Anna and Elsa. Let it go. <laughs> I build up to that. But that's not it. That, that is it. That, that's that song, as good and powerful as it is. Um, that's the idea behind it is this, there's, there's this desire within yourself that you've been kind of restraining for too long and just let it out which has easy implications toward the whole homosexual transgender conversation. Um, but they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't hit that directly with the, sh with the movie, so you don't apply it. But it lays the philosophical beds. Whereas it's like, oh, whatever is it within myself, let it out. Rather than whoever wants to follow Jesus denies self, denies my, my own desires, and instead take up my cross daily and follow Jesus. Now, uh, like Gene Veith makes this point in Spirituality of the Cross, and many, many do other, including Luther, more importantly, to take up our cross daily is the Christian vocation of life of service to the neighbor. So when you think of, of your life as a living sacrifice, like Romans puts it, uh, a living sacrifice for the neighbor, a sacrifice necessarily hurts. It's not easy. If it were easy, it's not a sacrifice, right? So to actually sacrifice something is to, is to hurt. And so for the Christian vocation, then it's this daily giving up of self, which is not easy. And we always fail, which gives us something to confess, right? Whenever we, whenever we repent, it's usually about our our selfishness and our refusal to deny ourselves and refusal to take up my cross of self-sacrifice and fix my eyes on serving my neighbor. And instead it's one of self-service. And that's where we find our, that's usually where we find our sin. It shows us our idols and the idols that we serve. Instead, we daily take up our cross. That's the suffering. It's the, it's the giving up of myself for the sake of the neighbor in my vocation. So the Christian is able to see all that they do as service for the neighbor, as a life of self-sacrifice, serving the other. That's the daily cross. I'm trying to make a Disney reference here and I can't. Um, oh yeah, so, so, tonight, so what I could say is that if, I, if, I'm, if it's true that my desires with, okay, I see where you're going. If the desires within myself are, are bad, then I want to separate from my physicalness as much as possible, which is like the, the, Buddhist, the Buddhist monasteries of trying to separate from their physicalness and become more spiritual. And focus, because spiritual is good, physical is bad. Well, what we're, what we're recognizing as Christians is physical is not bad because our God became physical for us and continues to work through physical things to forgive us, namely the sacraments, right? So he becomes physical on the cross. He takes up physicalness and he delivers the gospel to us in physical ways and still provides for us through physicality, like the fish and the bread, like whatever you're doing, your job, 
Your job is serving your neighbor in a physical way, and that is good and God-pleasing. So we're not avoiding the physical, but we're just acknowledging that the desires within ourselves are often self-serving. That desire and how our culture is screaming to give in to that desire and just let it rule you rather than the desire within me, we're identifying that the desire within myself is one of self-serving idolatry and I'm denying that. That's, but we don't always do it. That's the, this is Romans, uh, Romans 7 of we're simultaneously sinners and saints. There's a struggle, this daily cross of myself wanting to go a certain way and the saint within me pushing back and the sinner within me pushing back and that ongoing back and forth. The sin that I don't want to do, I keep doing and the good that I should be doing, I, I don't do it. Lord, help me, save me from this body of flesh. So that's, my, that's our, our life, our Christian life of vocation is one of daily fixing our eyes on the neighbor. And then um, uh, let, me, let me just wrap up this section. We can pick up with the next part next time. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But who, so sacrifice our life, not, not in the sense of kill yourself, but seeing your life as one of self-sacrifice for the other. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Isn't I toward martyrdom then? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. This should be like the theme verse of every parent who's trying to instruct your kids. When they say, what do I want to do when I grow up? You give them this verse. Because usually we have a mind toward, when, we're, when, we're, when our kids are figuring out what they want to do, it's on gaining the whole world. And in fact, they grow up with Disney telling them, you can be whatever you want to be. You can do anything. No, you can't. You're probably not. <laughs> I'm not a good motivational speaker. <laughs> but, but ultimately, what does, it, what does it profit? What does it really matter to gain the whole world and ultimately lose the eternality, to lose yourself, to lose your faith? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my word, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes again in glory on the last day. So think of the ways that, how easy it is to be ashamed of Jesus and of his Words, not only him, but also his, his words, who he, who he is. We're, we're, especially today, it was, it was much easier to not be ashamed of Christ 40 years ago or something, but it's getting to be increasingly unpopular by society. And so the temptation to be ashamed of Christ and his words or try to apologize for Jesus or soft pedal Jesus to our neighbors um, to try to weaken it or water it down so they're not offended by it, Right? That's being ashamed. Uh, but I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So this, the way the commentators put it is that the kingdom, so the disciples are the ones who are standing there seeing Jesus. They're gonna see Jesus die, rise, ascend into heaven. The full coming of the kingdom kind of put together there. Jesus as the ascended king um, is the coming of the kingdom. Not saying that they're gonna, they're gonna live until Jesus comes back on the last day. He is referring to that previously when he says Jesus coming in his glory, but he overlaps the two. What I'd like to do is take a couple questions. Uh, no questions. <laughs> and the next, if you have questions, write them down. We'll pick up there next week. Maybe I'll hit, hit on uh, nine, um, that, that final part of verse 26, 27. And they'll pick up finally next week with the transfiguration, um, which Jesus shining in all of his brightness. Let us close with a prayer from our opening hymn.
Today, your mercy calls us to wash away our sin, however great our trespass, whatever we have been, however long from mercy our hearts have turned away, your precious blood can wash us and make us clean today. Today, your gate is open and all who enter in shall find a father's welcome and pardon for their sin. The past shall be forgotten, a present joy be given, a future grace be promised, a glorious crown in heaven. Today, our Father calls us, his Holy Spirit waits, his blessed angels gather around the heavenly gates. No question will be asked us how often we have come. Although we often have wandered, it is our Father's home. O oh, all-embracing mercy, O oh, ever-open door, what should we do without you when heart and eye run o'er? When all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we know one gate is open, one ear will hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen.